Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by uh, two of my colleagues, uh, Chris Dredes. Uh, Chris is, of course, the co-host uh, of Inside Economics. Hi, Chris. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Yeah. You, you, I know your uh, vacation in Abruzzo, Italy is uh, coming to an end. I, you must be shedding a bit of a tear as a result of that. No? Got to come back to yes, the reality. Yes, of, of course, but you know I miss all of you, so <laughs> oh. I have something to look forward to as well. Oh, that's nice of you to say. And we got Bernard, Bernard Yaros. Bernard, you're uh, uh, increasingly a regular on Inside Economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been coming uh, on uh, for CPI week every now and, and it, then. It, yeah. And of course, everyone knows you as our Renaissance man, the <laughs> yeah. guy who knows ten languages, ran the marathon in Greece three times, <laughs> won five squash tournaments, pro squash tournament. Am I getting that roughly right? Uh, no, no running, just squash, <laughs> squash <laughs> languages and, and traveling. Yeah. Uh, there you go. And we're going to have a guest later in the podcast, uh, Lance Lambert, uh, uh, Lambert, I should say. Lance is uh, uh, is the real estate editor for Fortune. And uh, he and I have been chatting quite a bit over the past few years about housing and great guy to get a sense of the housing market because he talks to everyone uh, in the housing uh, community, those the, all the housers. And so it'd be great to have him on. So we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. And we are definitely going to talk about uh, the consumer uh, price index because uh, mm -hmm. that came out this past week and really pretty good, huh? Oh, well, I shouldn't put words in your mouth. I, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say. Uh, and maybe maybe we should just do that. We should just Dive right in, right? Let the of Bernard. Course, you want to yeah. give us a sense of that CPI number, and I, we also got producer price indices yeah. index as well, and that also uh, came in pretty well. So maybe you can cover those uh, two price measures, inflation measures. Yeah, I mean, overall, this was a week of disinflation of downside surprises. So to start first with the consumer price index, which I would say is the most important of the three that we got this uh, week. Uh, it was a very good report. Um, I, I totally, I'm totally on board with that uh, analysis. Um, and it was uh, the inflation was just less than expected for the month of June. So the consumer price index, which captures the average basket of goods and services that uh, consumers typically spend on, rose by only 0.2 percent in June, whereas consensus expectations were for a slightly larger 0.3 percent uh, gain. Uh, and then during, uh, if you look at it year over year, we're seeing a lot of disinflation. So we're, you know, we're we're back now around uh, three percent year over year growth in the CPI. Um, but if we just start looking at the components, you know, let's just start with the most important basic essentials like food and energy. Um, energy prices were, you know, moderately boosted the CPI in June. So we saw the gasoline prices rise by one percent uh, after falling by a uh, by a large margin in May. But the outlook is pretty, you know, at, at least in the near term, the outlook is pretty benign for energy prices. If you look at uh, gasoline futures prices, which typically lead retail gasoline prices by a few weeks, those suggest very little change in the CPI for gasoline uh, in July for you know for this uh, for the next uh, CPI print. Uh, and then just over the long term, I think the risks of uh, oil price spike seem a bit less uh, elevated as, as maybe we thought before, just because of how successful Russia has been to in invading uh, the sanctions imposed by Western powers. Um, and if we move on to food, uh, we also found out in the latest CPI print that food prices only rose by 0.1%. Uh, uh, but it's important to note that there's a there's been this dichotomy that's been emerging within the food uh, CPI. So on the one hand, inflation in food at home, or what I like to call grocery store inflation, that has been very weak. 
Uh, and this, again, speaks to the unwinding of all these supply shocks from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which last year really roiled uh, global agricultural markets and also sent the price of diesel soaring. And, and that matters because d- diesel, after all, is the workhorse of the agricultural industry. Um, and then you have another factor that's potentially weighing on grocery store inflation, and that's the end of uh, of additional fi- food assistance uh, that the federal government had been providing under the pandemic emergency declaration. Um, and this is also probably weighing on grocery store uh, inflation, at least on the margins. Um, and when I'm talking about this food assistant, we're talking about uh, food stamps, which, you know, based on our work, has is the most effective uh, form of, of federal spending out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you've got inflation in food away from home or restaurant inflation, and that has still been stubbornly strong. It's been growing at about four point, uh, about 0.4% or more on a monthly basis over the past several months. And this probably speaks to the wage growth that we've been seeing in the food services industry. Wage growth in the industry went stratospheric uh, in 2021, 2022. Um, and it's come back down, but it's still much higher than it was. It's still higher than it was prior at any point prior to the pandemic. So once we see labor market conditions loosen further, I think, in the restaurant industry and wage growth normalizes, we should see some less inflation uh, in this food away at uh, away from home category. Um, so food and energy prices, they're important. We've got to talk about them because they exert outsized influence on consumers' uh, inflation expectations. But they're volatile. You know, these are prices that are largely set in global markets, so they're not necessarily something the Fed has direct control over. So it's important to focus on the core CPI, which excludes food and energy. And here, I would say there was way more to like. There was way more, you know, uh, better much than more even good... you expected, right? Bernard? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I was looking. We went back and, back and forth. forth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was uh, on like a razor's edge. I was getting 0.25 percent for. You rounded uh, up. For, for the, yeah, I rounded up. By the way, I, I took that I number and I rounded down. <laughs> rounded down. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. Um, but there was a lot to like for the core CPI. It was up uh, 0.2% in June. So this, again, surprised to the downside relative to consensus expectations for a 0.3% increase. But also, if you look at the third decimal point, this was the smallest monthly gain in the core CPI since uh, February 2021. You look at the third decimal point? Bernard, I'm you, just you, you gotta, you gotta, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, Chris, do you look at the third decimal point? I'm just, I just wonder. Uh, there's an old <laughs> joke, right? About uh, economists. If they use a decimal point, they have a sense of humor. So, uh. <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. I forgot that. All right. Well, yeah. Well, Bernard's hilarious then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, it, yeah, so it was, you know, it was even just looking on a sequential basis, you know, this was a very good development. And this, the core CPI, it broke a six month streak where we were getting 0.4% or more growth over the month. Um, so it just, it does seem that the core CPI fever that we've uh, been feeling has been, is starting to break at least in this month, uh, in this past month. Um, and on a not seasonally adjusted basis, the core CPI is up uh 4.8% from a year earlier, which is also the slowest pace since uh, late 2021 or October 21. So can there's a lot of reasons. Can I just yeah. stop you for a second? Uh, going back to seasonal adjustment, mm-hmm. one reason I thought, you know, th- uh, before the number came out, and I haven't looked, mm-hmm. so I'm asking, that the the increase in inflation, core, particularly core CPI, would mm-hmm. be so soft is f- so-called favorable seasonals that 
the seasonal uh, prices are very seasonal. Uh, and because of the pandemic, we saw price swings, big price swings when the government exactly. when the shut down and then reopened. And that messed with the seasonal adjustment process that the Bureau of Labor Statistics employs to seasonally adjust the data. And that's flattering this number. Is that is that right? And do you know? I, I, it, I, it definitely, I think, on the margins, it did contribute, or on at margin. least on the yeah, yeah. Or I, I would say it, it probably, you know, a tenth of a percent it could a have. So that's yeah, okay, yeah. So I, I, it's it when we're looking at it on a sequential basis, month over month, I think that's it, it's a pretty significant uh, or meaningful reason why I think this also surprised to the downside, and it just goes to how difficult it is, you know the. The the BLS really does an admirable uh, task in trying to you know capture the seasonality in these prices, but that has been so tough uh, in the past couple of years, especially with you know the post lockdown rebound in prices that we saw uh, you know in the middle of uh, of 2020. I think some of these areas where I see I, I've I, a lot of these are very consumer dependent prices. So if you look at like lodging away from home, that has been extremely volatile, bouncing all around, and it, it was especially weak. Um, and some things I've read is just I, I I think in the past couple of years when you had a lot of post-pandemic revenge travel, people were spacing out or were traveling over longer periods of time rather than historically people really will all travel at once, you know, on the Fourth of July weekend or on Memorial Day. Um, but you know, in the past couple of years, they've been spreading out their travel over longer periods of time, and that I think has contributed to some of these seasonal adjustment issues. Um, remote work too, probably. Right? Remote, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you yeah. Can, I mean, I, I, I talked to a lot of people that are here, there, and everywhere because they're mm -hmm. they're they're remote working. You know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think next month you should also see some favorable. The the number could be a bit more flattering than would otherwise be the case yeah. because of this residual. But I, after this summer, after the June and July, I don't think this is really much of an issue going forward. So I, I stopped you in the middle of your rundown. Is there anything else, any further explication you have in, in terms of the overall number? I mean, it feels uh, like you could go down the rabbit hole for each one of these components. And oh <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. detail, which is great, which is great. But is there anything else you wanted to point out before we move on? Oh, I, I would just say the biggest development was just used uh, vehicle prices. Okay. That that after two months of 0.4% surges month over month, we finally got a decline. Uh, and this is something we had expected for a while because uh, a good leading indicator of used vehicle prices are what the prices that car dealerships are paying at auctions for the used vehicles that they sell later. And those, if you look at our uh, wholesale used vehicle retention value index, which really captures this, um, it, it's been uh, it, it's declined cumulatively by nearly uh, ten percent from February through June. So that uh, you know, looking ahead, at least for next for July, that suggests that used vehicle prices are going to be an even bigger drag on the core CPI than they were uh, this month. So it's not just residual seasonality, but you know, at actual fundamentals, I think uh, with vehicles, for example, that's going to really weigh on what, uh, core CPI. What about new vehicles? I, I noticed this past month they had fallen a couple months, and this month they were flat. And they, I, they were flat. Yeah, yeah. I they they, they were continued declines as production. Uh, we we also exactly because there was you know part of the reason that we got an increase in used vehicle or th there was just a lot of uh some hiccups late last yeah. year in auto production um but the auto production numbers have rebounded so that that does auger for uh for um for lower new vehicle prices but one thing we've seen is just second order effects from 
the past increase in new vehicle prices because if new vehicle prices rise, that means auto repair costs are going to also go up. It means the cost to replace a totaled car for car insurers is also going to go up. And there's, if you look at the data, there's almost been a, a perfect 12 month, almost a perfect 12 month lag between the peak in new vehicle inflation and the peak in uh, auto uh, maintenance and auto insurance inflation. Uh, but you're still seeing uh, 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 car insurance inflation is really picking up recently. It's, uh, and I think that has to do with just a lot more accidents uh, uh, on, the, on the highway compared to pre-pandemic rates. And also, I think car insurers uh, really got hit with a lot of losses last year that they, uh, they really um, underestimated you know, the premiums that they would have to pay out. So they're kind of readjusting. So for now, you're, you're seeing, while we're seeing some relief on the vehicle, you know, new vehicles and used vehicles, uh, with elsewhere within the vehicle space, motor vehicle insurance has been uh, uh, putting some upward pressure on inflation. But, but uh, just to connect all the dots, I mean, now that used and new vehicle prices have rolled over and starting to decline, that would suggest down the road, you know, down the road, this, exactly. This time next year, we might see some relief on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on auto repair and auto. You, you're already seeing like year over year in, in uh, auto repair, but it's the car insurance that's been uh, stubbornly strong. Okay, here's a test uh, of your 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 detail oriented detailed ori- oriented uh, understanding of this. Apparel prices they they confuse me a little bit. They're, they each and every month they seem to be rising by three tenths of a percent, mm-hmm. which seems you know historically that's high because if you go pre pandemic, probably pre um, you know, Trump trade wars when we you know china was coming on the scene pair prices would always fall they would consistently fall now they are seemingly consistently rising any any color there that is a tough one because we we okay. don't have a, a lot of good <laughs> hey it's chris uh, i just found something he doesn't exactly <laughs> know the answer to how about that pretty amazing <laughs> There you go. There you yeah, go. There you I'm go. sure next month when we have him on, he's going to go yeah, well, well, yeah. involved discussion <laughs> about apparel yeah. prices. Yeah, I'm just, I just, that struck me. Here's the other one that um, mm-hmm. I think we but might. Men's suits. Do. Men's suits are down. Right. Oh, is it men's? Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's an next. There's an explanation for that. Mm-hmm. Right. When's the last and time you bought a suit? Is up. Chris, when's the last time you bought a suit? Oh, God, I had to go to a wedding in 21. 2021. What about you, Bernard? When's the last time you bought a suit? Oh, it's been 2019. Yeah, yeah me too. 2019 yeah, before the pandemic. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I yep. actually went yep. to a wedding this past weekend, and I put on one of the suits I bought in 2019 that I've worn maybe three times, or maybe maybe less than that. <laughs> and you know, it just did it fit? It it actually did. It fit. It fit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. There you go. Yeah. yeah. There it go. I've been doing a lot of running during the pandemic, so it fit. Um, <laughs> So, uh, oh, here's the other thing that I think we need to just put on the table, uh, medical care costs, right? Because medical yep. uh, care services have, have been, uh, prices have been declining. Some of that goes back to insurance, uh, medical mm-hmm. care insurance, but that's going to reverse, isn't it here uh, later in the year? Yeah, that's going to, so the, the, the way the, so the, uh, the BLS looks at, re, you know, the retained earnings of uh, medical insurers. Um, and they don't estimate this in real time. They do. They update it about you know once a year, um, and during the course of that year, the you know the price, the month over month gain is pretty you know pr- pretty fixed at, you know at a fixed rate. So over the past several months, we've been getting consistent 3.6 percent declines in medical insurance, which is, which has been shaving off a few basis points uh, uh, off the core CPI. But that's going to end around uh, September October. 
Um, and presumably that we're not going to have as much of a drag on the core CPI uh, at, at that point. Okay. So uh, before I turn to Chris and get his reaction, uh, our uh, expectation, our baseline forecast in the middle of the distribution of possible outcomes has inflation, CPI inflation, consumer price inflation. Mm -hmm. It was 9% at the peak year over year back yeah. June of 2022. Uh, with this month's uh, release for the month of, of June, we are now down to 3%, so 9 to 3 Mm -hmm. uh, and we basically have inflation coming back fully to the Fed's target, which on CPI inflation is about two and a half percent core, core CPI, mm -hmm. excluding food yeah. and energy, which is, is is actually right at this point higher than overall because energy and the prices, and as you point out, food prices are weak. Uh, back to the Fed's target of two and a half percent ish uh, by the second half of 2024. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Sound good? I, I it it sounds good to me, and I think the key point is wage growth. Uh, I don't know if you want to get into. Before you do that, let's yeah, turn yeah. to Chris and see what right. Chris where, where Chris wants to fill in any holes uh, or gaps or pushback or any any comments on that, and 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 also your view on the our baseline forecast. Yeah, that's no, you, Chris. I, I, yeah, I think uh, Bernard did uh, an excellent job summarizing it all my points were the base effects the seasonal effects and the medical care uh, services so good report overall but you know be, be prepared for some reversal perhaps in the next few months but why uh, but nothing why? because because the medical care services ah, will start okay to tick in some of those base effects you know you go from favorable to unfavorable so uh, i'm not calling for this to, to take off again but uh, i wouldn't overreact uh, to a, a single month's report either here. This is a very good report, but you know, if you told me next month it's going to inflation could tick back up. Uh, totally. Right. Well within the realm of possibility here before things settle down. That's why I think our forecast is reasonable because we're you know, talking about a low, a long, slow period of time here. Exactly. Just, there's still a lot of things that have to happen here. We touched on the shelter costs as well, which we know will continue to need some time to work through. Uh, the entire system here. So I think it's a reasonable forecast. The direction certainly seems it, as though it's uh, it's firmly in place here, but uh, the specific timing and the hiccups along the way, obviously we have to be prepared for those. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, so what you're saying is, look, we're at three, target is mm -hmm. two and a half, and we're expecting that to get to two and a half on a consistent basis by the second half of next year. That feels like a long time, but there's a long set of things that have to happen, long winding road, as they say, between now and then. And as you're saying, there's going to be maybe two steps forward, one step back here, maybe in some months, right. maybe two steps back, one step forward, you know, something like that. It's going to, it's going to be hard, as they say, to traverse that last mile and get inflation back, uh, back to target. That's what you're saying. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, think I, the, to I totally agree. The yeah. trend is there, right? Things are going down. Things are moving in the right direction, but. The yeah. specifics could vary, right? But but you would say, wouldn't you, that you're you're surprised? Aren't you surprised at this? I mean, th this was really really good report, wasn't it? I mean, and it feels like it's something you know fundamental di disinflation because it's broad base. It's not one two things. It feels like pretty much everything is disinflating, right? Wouldn't wouldn't you say? Yeah, everything that. 
well, I don't want to say that matter, like shelter, right? Shelter, we know it's going to come down, but just because of the mechanics of how we calculate it, it's, it's artificially, in some sense, keeping it up. But yeah, other, otherwise, certainly, I, it's a good report. Yeah, surprising how, how robust it is. I, I guess that's the, or how widespread the, the declines are. I'd agree with that. And here's the other thing. It's happening without higher unemployment. You know, this so-called sacrifice ratio that we got to have much higher unemployment, much weaker economy, even a recession for, you know, many people think recession to get inflation back in. That that narrative feels much like almost blown apart by these these numbers. Well, no, you know, let's let's wait a minute here. You know, okay, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of my. I'm, I'm too too too. Employment's uh, the lagging indicator, right? Okay, still got could it. Be that right. These rate hikes could still make their way through the economy here, but yeah, everything right now, taken at face value, looks as though the slow session is in place. The soft landing is certainly right. higher probability than it was a few months ago. Right. And you know, maybe there needs to be some sacrifice. I mean, I'm not arguing that unemployment, because in our baseline, we have unemployment going from yeah. 3.6% to over four. I'm not, you know, I, I think that's right, but it feels like it isn't like we got to, we, we have to go into recession. We don't have to sacrifice the economy to get inflation back in. I mean, again, a lot of script to be written here. Things can happen, but that's what it feels like pretty strongly, I would say at the moment. No. Yeah, no, I think there was okay. some analysts calling for 6%. We needed to have 6% unemployment to right. get unemployment, uh, get yeah. inflation down to target. And that seems, I think it's it's pretty clear that's that wasn't necessary. We don't need that. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Even the 3.6%, I'm becoming increasingly of the mind that maybe we don't even need four, right? That 3.6 feels like kind of sort of like full employment uh, because- this is where uh, I cut Bernard off uh, around wage growth. You know, I guess we need to get more data in, but that also mm -hmm. feels like it's moving in the right direction, not near where it needs to be to get inflation all the way back in, but pretty close. And actually, if you look at super so-called super core inflation, that's services excluding housing services and energy service. That's the measure that Jay Powell, the chair of the Fed, you know, put forth as you know what he's looking at. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bernard, but that because that's those are labor intensive activities. That, yeah, it was at 3.8 percent year over year in uh, June, so that's down significantly from the peak of 6.6 percent uh, uh, in September. So it's come yeah. down a lot. Yeah, and on a three month, if you look over the last three months and analyze that, it's I think it's like in the two, even lower. Yeah, it's, it's like even in lower. two, three, two, four, two, five. You know, yeah, some of that goes yeah. back to the medical care. Uh, so maybe <laughs> that is overstating the case, but. Feels no, like... but you've seen you've seen a lot of weakness in these consumer like travel or yeah, exactly. I mean, the oil airfares plummeted by eight point eight point one percent. That's dragging on it, and lodging away from home, uh, rental vehicle prices, all of these have been really weighing on on super core. So, and I guess my broader point is that we we could get service price inflation back into the bottle, you know, mm -hmm. back consistent with the Fed's target, without wage growth actually. Going down much more. Maybe we don't need, you know, much further deceleration of wage growth because it's already happening. You know, mm -hmm. part of that may be because for uh, many uh, companies, margins did widen out during the pandemic. Uh, you know, their profit margins uh, got juiced, and now on the other side, as competitive pressures start to kick back in and supply chain issues are no longer an issue, labor market issues, the disruption is no longer an issue. Those competitive forces are driving those margins back into something that are more typical pre-pandemic. 
And so you could actually get inflation coming back in, even if you know you don't get wage growth all the way back to something that we think might be you know long longer run mm-hmm. consistent with the inflation. Does it, am I making sense there? Or, or, <laughs> that I don't know. Is that Chris? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. All right. uh, you must be arguing then that productivity c- kicks in, or you know, something. Yeah. No, no. I, I'm saying, it, right? yeah. I, I, I'm saying we ultimately have to get wage growth back down to say 3.5 percent. That's our bogey, yeah. right? Two percent inflation, one and a half percent underlying productivity growth. But in the in the immediate near future, in the next 12, 18, 24 months, maybe not. You know, maybe businesses take it on the chin. You know, their margins come in, you know, from from where they were. They they bloomed out. Now they come back in. So therefore we can have a period of inflation, you know, price inflation that is uh, you know, more consistent with the Fed's target with actually with wage growth that's a little bit more inflated than it, than it would be that than what you need over the longer run. Does it, you see what maybe I'm saying? Marginally. Maybe yeah. marginally, right? If, oh, yeah. if we're at 3738 yeah. Is that what you're arguing? Well, that, yeah, that yeah. could be consistent. Yeah, but. Well, I think on average all earnings were four and a half. You know, maybe that's yeah. a point over what we think. I think I, I guess I'm saying we could get inflation back into target over the next year, even at a four and a half percent wage growth, because margins could come in over that period. That's what I'm saying. Just just I guess it's possible. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Very good. Uh, so um uh, anything else you want to point out uh, on the? Uh, we also got the producer price in, uh, measure. Uh, anything there that you want to? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it rose less than expected. Uh, there was, you know, uh, uh, going back to the food uh, food prices, that you saw some weakness there, and that's a good leading indicator. You know, wholesale prices for food that's a very good leading indicator for uh, overall consumer prices uh, on on food. Um, we also got the import prices uh, that fell a bit more than expected, uh, according to today's report. So it, it does should suggest that the U.S. is uh, 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 importing some some deflation from abroad. Uh, but all of these, I, I don't think the, the implications from these, I mean, uh, for at least monetary policy are not as big as uh, as the consumer price index. And um, I guess just going back to the the whole wage growth uh, 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 conversation, I the one reason why I think we're not going to get as much or wage growth will come down in the next uh, you know over the next years that I think a lot of the strong wage growth that we've seen has been a product of employees clamoring for higher wages for higher raises to compensate for the really strong inflation that we've gone over these past two years yeah. and this goes back to some of the work that we've done that it's you know the direction of causality is not from wages to consumer prices it's the other way around it's from yeah. consumer prices to wages and I think you know uh, beyond margins and, and and other behaviors by businesses I think employers you know over the next year they'll probably push back against employees who are asking for higher rate raises because they'll be able to point to a lower rate of inflation and they're not going to acquiesce to um, some of the high you know, uh, raises that people were asking, maybe, uh, you know, justifiably so um, over the past couple of years. Yeah. So, did you um, see the San Francisco Fed uh, paper on this issue of wage prices, mm-hmm. prices, wages? I mean, they came yeah. to the same conclu- basically the same conclusion that yeah, it's inflation yeah. driving wages, not wages driving inflation. Yeah. So we're not this dreaded wage price spiral has no. We're not there. If anything, no. wage growth, high wage growth is slowing the descent in in consumer prices, but it's not. You know, they're not self reinforcing into uh, an upward spiral. 
Yeah. Okay. Let's play the statistics game because, you know, I'm afraid if we keep talking, we're going to take all the statistics the way Bernard <laughs> thrown out these numbers. It's going to take all the statistics. And I got a really good one, I think, that makes makes a good point. Um, uh, the, the game is uh, we each put forward a statistic. The rest of us tries to figure that out through clues, deductive reasoning, um, questions. Uh, the best statistic is one that's not so easy we get it immediately, not so hard that we never get it, and one that's apropos to the topic at hand or you know a recent statistic. So with that, Bernard, uh, what's your statistic? Uh, my statistic is 6.7%, and it's a combination of a statistic that came out this week and another one that came out last week. Oh. Uh, oh. oh, my Lord. Uh, so is is it related to the CPI number this week? Yes, yes. It is it related that. to the job number last week? Yes, yes. Okay. So, so, so Chris, some combination is of it a, a real lead? Some type of... Yeah, yeah. It, it's got to be something to do with real wage game but that's so average hourly earnings were no earnings no no earnings okay no. okay all right uh, is it something per employee or per no 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 uh oh. um it, so it has to do with the consumer is it is it a, a ratio it's a ratio obviously it's a percent so in the numerator is the something for related to prices and the denominator is something related to to jobs no it, it's a sum Oh, it's a sum. Oh, uh, <laughs> a sum. Oh, goodness. Uh, is it a sum of inflation, CPI inflation, and something? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So CPI inflation was three. So the other thing is three point seven. Oh, this is the, oh, the misery uh, index. Misery, yeah, the misery index. index. Yeah, yes. Yes. Index. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's oh, the yeah, mis yeah. yeah, the misery index is the sum of the seasonally adjusted unemployment rate and the annual inflation rate. Um, and it's just an economic indicator that economists like to use to measure just the economic malaise or distress that, uh, you know, everyone is feeling. I mean, it's actually the lowest since uh, since March 2020 and even lower than its average over the two, 20 years prior to the pandemic, which was about 8 um, percent. But even still, I mean, you, you know, whenever I'm talking to 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 the media about inflation, the rate of uh, inflation falling, people still say, well, you know the level of prices are still much higher, and I and I think this really speaks to why people are still feeling uh, really down in the dumps. You look at Gallup polls; everyone looks, you know, really thinks uh, inflation is still a problem. And I think it's because they're not really. They probably look at economists look talking about falling inflation rates, but they're looking more at the level of prices. And if you just calculate the consumer price index, is still about ten percent higher relative to where it should be if. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, the CPI had increased at roughly the it, its average pace over the prior decade. So people see that 10% difference between where they think prices should have been and where it is now, and they're saying, "Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 10% poorer as a result, and, and as a result, they, you know, they feel pretty crummy." Um, so it's, uh, I, I think, even though we're seeing the misery index, I think that that might have had a better. Uh, explanation that might have done a better job explaining consumer sentiment or confidence in in times past but uh i think since people just got so used to the low inflation that we had and and, and really liked it um that you know that this even though we're seeing an unwinding of this uh consumer price shock over the past couple of years they're still not feeling happy yeah. um and this this just speaks to a lot of yeah. research you know like robert schiller had his famous why do people dislike inflation piece you know 
uh, a few decades ago, and, and people would even prefer high, uh, you know, more joblessness compared to inflation. So it's it's really it's always been top of mind for people. Well, the other way to to make that point is uh, we calculate the increase uh, in uh, in what people the typical American household has to pay to buy mm-hmm. the same goods and services as they did a year ago and and two years ago. And so based on because of the inflation right now as of uh, june they have to pay almost a couple hundred bucks more a month than they did mm-hmm. a year ago to buy the same goods and services but they have to pay 750 dollars more than they did two years ago yeah, per month yeah. to buy the same yeah. goods and services exactly that, that's yeah. a big then in a typical american household makes i don't know what 65 70k you know mm-hmm. 65 70k you know something like that so mm-hmm. that gives you a sense of the the financial pain that you're describing. Yeah. And also, I mean, people focus only on the negative. They don't think about that wage wages have also gone up a lot. Yeah, Obviously not as yeah, yeah. But you know, there I, I think people are singularly focused on the negative and not, you know, some of the the results uh, of, of high inflation, which has also been high nominal wage growth. Yeah. Chris, uh, what's your statistic? Okay. This is a number that isn't directly related to uh inflation or housing. No. <laughs> so, uh, but it came out this week and it caught my eye. It's uh, okay. seven point two billion dollars. Billion dollars, seven point yep. two billion. Is statistic that came is a government statistic? It is a government statistic. Came out early this week. Oh, I know what it is. All right, it's the increase in consumer credit outstanding. You got it, uh, Bernard. Very you see low. how that's done? Yeah, 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 I'm an yeah, old guy, yeah. but I'm still quick yeah. with the numbers. Well, Bernard, below expectations. Bernard's ashamed. Yeah. He's, look at him. Look at him. He's, feeling old. He's slinking in his chair back there. The, the old, the old guy got it. You, you want to explain, Chris? Yeah. So that's the uh, an estimate of the uh, total amount of the, the change in the stock of consumer credit in uh, in May. This is a, related to the uh, May uh, number. Seven point two billion is well below expectations. Expectation was for about twenty billion or so. That's what we had in April. Kind of the trend level we were at. So clearly, uh, consumers are not borrowing as much. Uh, revolving credit actually increased 8.5 billion, and non-revolving credit actually fell 1.3 billion. That's student loans hmm. and autos for the most part. So that's interesting. So then the question here is: Well, is this because of uh, a voluntary pullback? Consumers don't want as much credit. Maybe they're not taking as much out. Uh, or is this, um, in my in my theory, more likely? Uh, the case that uh, lending standards are pulling back and consumers can't get all the credit they, they otherwise uh, might desire. So I think this is something to watch, right? If if indeed consumers are not able to access credit because of the tightening standards, you could see that pullback on spending uh, going forward. So again, yeah, good, good one, one. Hey, data let me point, ask you, you don't want to, you don't. Let me ask you a couple of things. Uh, one question, one comment uh, on the, on the question, yeah. this is data from the federal reserve uh yep we we get our own data right based on equifax credit files all the files in the country and often i i view our data as the bible right because it's a a full census of the of the credit file so we get all of the files uh do you know happen to know did we have the same kind of weakness in our june data based on equifax files oh you know what i haven't uh, i did not check that yeah, because I I'm always suspicious of that Fed data month to month, um, and a lot goes to seasonality too, seasonal adjustment. Yeah, uh, for yeah. sure, for sure. Um, and here's the question: yeah, so I, Here's the question that it's there, it's not a real number. 
Um, here, the question is, what about student loan debt forgiveness? Because well, I just saw that the president, President Biden, here we are, you know, July 14th, Friday, announced as part of the income-driven repayment plan that uh, uh, there will be about almost $40 billion forgiven for those people who are still paying on their debt 20, 25 years, you know, uh, for 20, 25 years, and they get debt, they get debt forgiveness. That presumably would be a deduction, right, from non-revolving credit outstanding, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, but that wouldn't have hit this number yet. No, but, uh, but maybe some been. of that's going on, though. I'm curious, you know? I wonder if... Yeah, you're right. That would be more of a... Probably a July, August, September thing. But uh, something yeah. to watch. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. All right. Well, very good. Let me, uh, I'll give you a statistic. It's, 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 uh, it's related to inflation. Uh, it's not the CPI report, uh, but it is related to inflation. And it goes back to the discussion around uh, uh, wages uh, and wage growth, 3.8%, 3.8%. And it, it's something that came out this week. And to be precise, because uh, uh you know, I am a little weird like Bernard, 3.83%. <laughs> I don't know the third significant digit, though. I don't think it was published. <clears throat> Any ideas? Uh, uh, it's not, a, not an expectation. Oh, it is. Very good. Excellent. Okay, but it's not yeah. It's not University of Michigan because that was 3.1. No. That was no uh, not, New York it, Fed survey of yes, 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 very yes. good, guys. Ah, okay. That's yeah. great, excellent. Yeah, the New York Fed has a monthly uh, survey of, uh, of uh, consumer expectations and as part of that, inflation expectations one year ahead, so near term inflation expectations by consumers that fell to 3.8 percent. The peak was 6.8 percent back, I believe, last summer. Not surprising, that's when gas prices hit their all time high. Uh, and they're still high. I mean, before the pandemic, they were hovering near three, uh, but, you know, clearly moving in the right direction. And this goes to, you know, one of the theories I've been espousing, uh, you know, for a while, and that is the high wage growth that we, we, we've seen is not so much the result of the tight labor market, although that certainly must be contributing. It's uh, the surge in inflation expectations that occurred, you know, back when Russia invaded Ukraine, gas oil and gas prices went skyward and nothing plays more central of a role in people's formation of expectations than what they pay for a gallon of regular unleaded. And so that caused expectations to jump. And then they went to their employer and they said, look, you got to pay me more because I, I just can't come to work. I can't afford it. And the employer said, fine, we'll do it. But now gas prices, oil, gas prices are back in uh, and um, expectations are coming back in. And that goes to your point, Bernard, that I, I do think we are going to see uh, wage growth, uh, you know, moderate here, and all this happens without any change in uh, unemployment or any other measure of labor market tightness. You know, it, it just goes yeah. to inflation expectations. So, uh, what do you think? Reasonable theory? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, already, I mean, we've seen just the complete breakdown between unemployment and job openings, yeah, which, exactly. yeah, which job openings I think are down fifteen percent year over year, and historically, or at least in the little history that we have, normally when that's the case. The, un the number of unemployed persons also surging by a, by a commensurate amount, uh, um, so it, or a magnitude. Uh, so it's it, it, the, I think we've gotten a lot of reduction in uh, excess labor demand. Uh, we've gotten a fallen and a fallen quits, but without any really real labor market stress. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're running long in the tooth here because we do have a guest and uh, I want to bring him into the conversation. We're going to talk about housing. Uh, uh, but before I do that quickly, uh, what's your thinking around probability of recession, but based on all this great data that we've gotten, you know, over the last uh, couple, three weeks, Bernard, what, what is your, uh, what probability do you put on uh, recession NBER National Bureau of Economic Research defined recession beginning at some point in the coming year? I, uh, I, I say this time next year. Yeah, it's still thirty-five percent. Thirty-five percent. Yeah, and yeah. That's where I, I've, I've been. I've been there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not going to move it lower just because uh, just because of one month of data. But I think yeah. this reinforces where I, I where I've been. yeah. You feel you feel better about that thirty-five percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Chris, you were at fifty percent, I believe, last week. Are you yep. change because of these numbers? Nope, sticking with 50-50. Because that's just... Uh, <laughs> oh, what's it going to take, too much my friend? In there. What's oh, going to take, my know. friend, to get you coming One in? One report is not enough. Uh, okay, I'm at 40, 40%. That's where I am. Although I'm leaning towards Bernard. I really, <laughs> I'm leaning towards him. I, I might get there. Let's see how the data play out here uh, going forward. Okay, we're going to call uh, this part of the podcast... Uh, 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 to a close, and then we're going to now turn to uh, our guest. And I'd like to welcome Lance Lambert to our podcast. Hey, Lance, how are you? Hey, doing good, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me on. Housing, housing, housing. Always a lot going on in the market right now. Yeah. And you are the real estate editor at uh, Fortune. Yeah. So uh, watching the commercial side uh, and also the housing side uh, where you know they're both kind of reacting to these high interest rates. Oh, I didn't know that. So you cover commercial real estate as well. Well, with my own writing, it's mostly residential, but kind of building out a team and uh, some of them uh, work on the commercial stuff. Oh, okay. And on the residential side, is it mostly single family or are you also uh, on the multifamily as yeah, well? Yeah, single family. Yeah, that's where got it. focus has been. And we got, we've gotten to know each other over the last couple, three, four years. Uh, uh, we've been chatting a lot about the housing market over the, over the yeah, since the pandemic, right. really. Yeah, through a, and a lot has happened during that time. Uh, you know, we had talked right at the very bottom of the deepest part of the pandemic. And then as the boom kind of took off in housing and the economy started to recover and then into the quantitative tightening and the mortgage rates. So it's been really interesting to see it all play out very fast. Now, do you do you say Fortune magazine or do you just say Fortune now? Is, it, is there a magazine? Yeah, there is still a magazine. Uh, six, okay choose a year. I think I write usually one article a year, uh, but we've really grown beyond that. And, you know, we're really known for our conference side. And uh, so th it's still Fortune Magazine, but a lot of people just know us as Fortune. I got a great Fortune Magazine story. You want to hear it? Hit me. <laughs> so back, <laughs> could be 25 years ago now, maybe longer. I don't know. Uh, when I was a young economist, they Fortune Magazine had a a piece, the sexiest economists in the country. No lie. And oh, I God. was oh, I God. was one of the sexiest <laughs> Obviously, the bar is incredibly low uh, to get over, but but I uh, but I, I actually my my mother was so proud of that. She's got, you know, <laughs> took the picture, put it in a frame. I've got it somewhere. Uh yeah. Yeah. And, you know, back in like the 80s and stuff, uh Fortune used to do the list of like the toughest CEOs. And it was kind of like something that the CEOs wanted to be known for. And then now you fast forward to 2023 and it's uh, just a very oh, yeah. tough environment. Yeah. CEOs yeah. don't want to be. On they that don't want to be tough. They want to, 
I, I'm not sure economists want to be sexy either. I'm not sure. I, I was I was okay with it at the time, but I don't think any, I don't think economists would want to be called. So. Chris, what do you think? Absolutely not. Absolutely, <laughs> Absolutely not. not. <laughs> now, now Bernard, Bernard, movie star quality. Wouldn't you say? I, I don't know. Yeah, anyway. Uh, anyway, that's my story. But so let's talk about housing, and, and, and this is going to be a lot of fun because I'm turning the the uh, tables on you, right? Because more often than not, you you will uh, call up and quiz me. I'm going to quiz you because uh, you talk to everybody in the in the industry, uh, and so you have a really good feel for you know the the and you, you I, I follow your your twitter feed uh and you're prolific i don't know how you do it but you you are prolific with your twitter feed so you you have a good sense of what's going on so what is your sense of the market right now the single family housing market right now how would you characterize it yeah so last year uh into the spring the market was overheating in a way that we hadn't really seen since like the bubble and, and you know even the, it was so dramatic that it was actually a little bit faster uh, when you just look at the the, the two year time frame, and that coincided with uh, the Federal Reserve, you know, moving into quantitative tightening mode, and mortgage rates going from three, four, five, six to even kind of like seven there into the fall. We saw a very kind of like dramatic uh, move in the market with uh, you know home sales going into free fall. And then out west, the markets like Austin, Boise, Las Vegas, we saw initially in summer 2022, uh, inventory started to build very quickly as demand pulled back and, and you know, kind of absorption was broken temporarily. And then we saw corrections out west too, with prices moving down and builders across a lot of the country having to, you know, pull down profits to do the incentives, to do the mortgage rate buy-downs, the cash at close and to cut price in some of the new communities. And then you take that, and then into 2023, we had a bit of a shift again, where we went from kind of like the correction mode at the end of the year into you know some resiliency. And as we're starting to see this data roll in the spring, what we've seen is that house price growth at a national level looks kind of normal, right? Maybe even a little above normal. And a lot of that is led by the markets that are, um, aren't as high cost, the, the Scrantons, uh, a lot of parts of the Midwest. Um, and, and then also, you know, some of the parts that, you know, to, the, to them locally, you know, like in the Northeast, it feels expensive, but it wasn't quite as separated uh, from fundamentals in, in terms of uh, rent to price or price to rent as like the Western peers. And uh, so we've seen some resiliency with some of the existing house prices this spring. On the builder side, given their adjustments that they made last year, they were in a good position to grow sales this year, right? They kind of went out and they met the market. Um, and, you know, some buyer acceptance too, uh, as we moved into the year and they were kind of like, okay, I'll, I'm on board with the 6% mortgage rate, a little bit of that. And, uh, and, and, and then on the existing home sales, we're still not getting a lot of volumes, right? It's very low. It's very constrained. Uh, the churn side of the market is really just knocked off. Uh, you're not going to go out and sell your home at, and give up your 2 3 4% mortgage rate and then go buy something new at a 6 7% rate. And plus, if you did that, there's not a lot of uh, 
existing inventory out there. So you would have this uh, a price shock, affordability shock on the monthly payment. And then, oh, by the way, you probably wouldn't get what you wanted too, because there's just not a lot out there. So we so existing inventory, very constrained. House price growth this spring looks kind of normal. New sales rebounded a lot. And then on the institutional side, uh, you know, a lot of those people that I talked to, they were kind of hoping that house prices would come down more or that rates would come down more. Their cap rates are in a tricky spot. Uh, so Yield Street, which they own like a thousand homes, nothing too crazy. Um, but they haven't bought a single home in the first quarter of the year. Nothing. They didn't add anything because the cap rates are so out of whack. And if you look at the earnings reports for the beginning of the year for invitation homes and for American Homes for Rent, they were actually net sellers those quarters. Uh, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to go out. Um, the returns just aren't there right now for the really big guys. Some of the small players have stayed out there because they don't kind of live in that same cap rate world that the institutional guys do. Uh, so some of them are still playing. But in terms of the institutional side, I consider that constrained right now. Um, and then, of course, you know, you look at the mortgage side of the market, they're still paying their uh, uh, rocket mortgage. Uh, they were like a top 250 company on the Fortune 500 last year. And then this year, we just put out the new report. They completely fell out because uh, the refi market has just dried up. Um, and uh, so refi is very, very weak. And that's expected when you go from 3% mortgage rates to six. So just to summarize, in terms of home sales and mortgage originations, where you just ended, weak. Uh, weak. Some stability, I, I, I guess the free fall is over, but the level of activity remains very low. And that just goes to continued high fixed mortgage rates and still high house prices. Affordability is still uh, uh, really poor. Well, that, that's what I didn't get to is that, yes, okay, so you look at house price growth, it looks kind of resilient somewhat this spring, but on the other side of it, uh, you know, affordability is just in the toilet. Uh, you know, when you I, take I was going to say, I was, I was, you should, I paused because I was going to say that same word, but then I said, maybe, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say, it. but then you go ahead and say, it, so yeah. that's fair. So yeah. that's the big question here with house prices. It's kind of like, are, you know, okay, a lot of people are saying that we're in the clear now. You look at CoreLogic's forecast, you look at Zillow's, they're like, hey, the, you know, we bottomed, it's up from here. Uh, and you look at the house price growth this spring, okay, it looks kind of normal. But then you look on the affordability side, and then we're in a very bad spot. And there's just not much. And yes, prices are kind of moved up this spring, but it's happening on very, very low levels of volume. Right. Okay. And then on the new home side, uh, builders, you, you, you kind of alluded to this just to make it concrete. What you're saying is they've been more aggressive and effectively cutting price, right? I mean, yeah. interest rate buy down would buy downs would be a good example of that. So they've they've helped to restore some level of affordability. So they've been able to keep sales up. Is that fair way of describing? Correct. It? Yeah. If you okay. look at it at the pandemic peak, their profit margins were off the charts. Mm -hmm. uh, they had pretty much had all the pricing power during the pandemic, um, as you know the market overheated and there wasn't enough existing inventory out there to meet demand, uh, you know, a lot of that demand poured over into the new home market and they kind of had their way with it. And so when the correction happened, 
uh, they, they just went right to uh, pricing adjustments and uh, mortgage rate buy downs. And so you're starting to see some builders raise some prices. But that right? keep in mind is that when a builder raises a price, okay, maybe they go up 2%. When a builder cuts a price, it's often on like a new community and they're going down like 10%. Like they just rip that bandaid off. Mm. Um, so it's not like it's right. It's not like a V-shaped recovery for new, for new house prices. And new, new house prices are really tricky to measure. Um, you know, John Burns Real Estate Consulting has a few different things they do. And then you do have the medians, uh, but those also can get moved by, you know, just the shifts and mix too. Um, but yeah. yeah, we we know John really well. John was on, I, I actually been on our podcast a couple of times. Really, I, good, I listened really to that good. one. That when I said that I've listened to a few, that was that one was of the, one of them. Yeah, one of my favorite really, ones I've listened to. Yeah, he's really good. He's very good. Have to have him back on. And then in terms of house prices, just to round out the summary. Uh, there was some uh, real weakness back about a year ago when the, the interest rates first kind of uh, hit the market, the higher interest rates. But more recently, so far this year, more stability in pricing. Actually, as you pointed out, some price increases uh, that are occurring. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing when I look at like the uh, the monthly month over month data from like Freddie Mac and uh, from Kay Schiller, Zillow Home Value Index. Uh, the Black Knight ones is that uh, it, 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 it's a pretty normal level of month over month grains for the spring. And if you seasonally adjust, it's still fairly normal. Uh, but the big question mark is what happens in the second half of the year as we move into the seasonally slow window? Is there kind of like, you know, does the balance shift a little? Like, does the strained affordability gain more of an edge on the market? Whereas yeah. I spring what happened is the tight resale inventory gained the edge and so it's like okay what happens in that second half of the year uh, that's a good way of thinking about it framing it so you're saying uh, you've got these uh, two different cross currents one supporting prices and that's the lack of inventory people are kind of locked into their home they don't want to move because they got to go from a three three and a half percent mortgage to a six and a half seven percent and then uh the countervailing uh, he, uh is the is kind of a uh, the affordability issue, uh, which is really weighing on the ability for transactions to kick in. So that's the, there's the balance between those two things. I, I think that's right. And so one of the, so I was looking back at the case Shiller data since 1975 and in the case Shiller data on a year over year basis, you've only had three periods in that series where we've gone negative year over year, early nineties, mm. the two thousands, and just now. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about this one that we just had is that this happened while inventory was still down, active listings still down like 40% from pre-pandemic levels. So I think that what that kind of tells us, and then if you also look at the markets where the price cuts have happened, I think if there was even like 10, 20, 30% more inventory, I think this could be a whole different game in terms of like what give up could have happened over the past year. Well, I want to come back to the outlook in just a second, because that's obviously very key here. And I think there's a wide, and you'll tell me because you know this better than I, but it feels like there's a wide disparity in people's expectations about where house prices are headed. But before we do that, Chris, let me just quickly turn to you. You, you heard this characterization of the market where we've been, where we are. Any pushback there? Or would you characterize it any differently? Anything else you'd add? Uh, no, I think... Uh... I think you nailed it. Um, I would say it's a meaning me, uh, you agreed with him. You agree with him. That's what yes, you mean. You yes. say he nailed it. Yeah. Okay. That's right. That's right. 
No, I think that you know, given all that that's been discussed here, that's a very unhealthy market. Are you in Italy still? Because your your connection is. <laughs> Is not you, good. Oh. Not that great. Are, are you in Italy? Oh yes, I am. Oh I am. okay. Yeah. Everyone's abandoning me, right. Lance. Chris is off in Italy. Marissa, the our other coach. Golf video. Yeah, where's she? She's like in Hawaii or something. Uh, Hawaii, I'm the only yeah. guy. I'm the only guy who's working. Yeah. What's that all about? I don't. You know. I guess. I guess I deserve it. Um. Okay. So. So Lance. Um. Uh. Looking She's forward. Um. So let's let's let's. Think about the the outlook, and you know one of the key. Uh, there's a lot of different uh, components to to determining the outlook for housing. The obvious is mortgage rates, mm-hmm. and you and I have been talking about this for quite some time. Uh, and you know, my sense is that you know fixed mortgage rates that right now they're hovering around seven percent. Probably will continue to do so somewhere between, yeah, I think for the year we have 6.5% for the 30-year fixed on average. And that feels kind of roughly right to me. Do you have a sense, Lance, is that, do you have a view on that? And, you know, what is the consensus view on that from your perspective? Yeah. So the consensus view, um, a lot of it's actually kind of gravitated a little bit more to your model and Goldman's model, which is your, you and Goldman were both Coming, came into the year and we're like, okay, we're going to stay probably in these mid sixes. Uh, you know, the 10 years not going to give up a lot this year and it's going to be more of a slow grind down for mortgage rates. Heading into the year, there were still a lot of the places that thought, you know, it'd be like low fives this year, um, a little more of the optimistic crowd. So as the years went on, a lot more of these have kind of gravitated to yours, which is kind of like the higher for longer. And uh, I, I think some of those... Uh, thought the economy would weaken much faster than mm. it has. Like there's been a lot of resilience in the labor market, a lot of the resilience uh, that you've kind of talked about uh, that, you, you know, you were kind of optimistic that we might be able to avoid a recession, whereas, you know, that recession camp got really big last fall. And uh, so now I think a lot of them still have like, you know, a slow grind down uh, into the fives into like 2024, 2025, I, your outlook is six five this year, six next year, and then five yeah, five. Right. Five, right. Yeah. Wow. That's really good. You, I think uh yeah, well, yeah, I I hey, well, you know the numbers. <laughs> okay. Very uh, good. And uh and Goldman's kind of around that range. Are they? Okay. You know, the the outlier that just came out last week is that Morningstar said they think that 2025 would average four percent. Mm. And so to average four percent you would have to have a three handle for a lot of the year. Um, and that's probably a dramatically weaker economy. It, recession, it sounds like, like, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, right. And, uh, so, and, you know, like Morgan, uh, Mortgage Bankers Association has been a little more of the optimistic side. Uh, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have just been a little bit under yours and Goldman's. Uh, but they've kind of had to come up this year and kind of get, yeah. get a little closer to you and Goldman. Well, that's good. I mean, our thinking is that we are able to skirt recession. Ten-year uh, treasury yields, upon which fixed mortgage rates are ultimately uh, related to, pegged about four percent ish. We're kind of hovering around that at this point, and that spread between the the uh, fixed rate mortgage and the ten-year treasury yield, which is extraordinarily wide, you know, right now, 
fixed mortgage rates are seven, 10 year yield is four, that spread is 3% or 300 basis points. That's about double what it is historically, that that spread will narrow over time. That's our forecast. And that's how we go from kind of a six and a half, seven percent down to something closer to a five and a half percent. That spread normalizes, gets gets well, back that, down to that's been interesting to watch. Uh, you know, this year it started to maybe come down a little bit early in the year. Then we had the banking crisis that kind of expanded again, and then it came down just a little bit. The debt ceiling stuff came back up. And now I think it's still in like 300 basis points, 3%. It is, yeah. It's still, you know, three yeah. percent. Yeah. But it, and I think a lot of that goes to uh, the shape of the yield curve. I'm not going to get, you know, there's a lot of nerdy things to talk about there, the shape of the yield curve, prepayment risk, so forth and so on. But, you know, over time, if uh, we skirt recession, inflation comes in, the Fed can start taking its foot off the brakes, lowering rates, that yield curve will start to become more normally shaped, more positively sloped. Uh, and 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 then the the result will be that spread will will slowly normalize over time, but it'll take a little bit of time for that to happen. So we'll get back to in the long run, abstracting from the ups and downs in the economy. We expect uh, I expect the thirty year fix to be around five and a half percent, you know, something like that. But we won't get there for a while. It'll take some time, kind of the thinking. Yeah, uh, interesting. Yeah. So so okay. Uh, in terms of the house price outlook, let me try something out on you, uh, kind of my pet theory as to how this is going to play out and get your perspective uh, on this. Uh, I, I have to say, I have been surprised that we haven't seen more house price weakness. I expected more, you know, given the current mortgage rates. And I think you're right that, you know, it's the lack of housing inventory going back to the interest rate lock. People just like their mortgage, love their mortgage, may not like their home, but they love their mortgage so much they're not going to move, at least for a while. But here's the theory. The theory is that life happens. You know, there are life events, uh, death, divorce, children, um, job change. And, you know, over time, people have to move. They can't stay where they are forever. And as they move and we get more transactions, those transactions have to be at a lower price, uh, because at uh, e e these mortgage rates, at these house prices, people can't can't afford it. They just simply can't do it. Can't get the mortgage, so prices have to come in. And and so right now, by our house price measure, a repeat sales index tracks the same homes over time. So it abstracts from the measurement issues you mentioned earlier around mix. They're down maybe one two percent from the peak a year ago. Year over year, as you say, they're down. But we still, I still expect prices to be down when it's all said and done, peak to bottom, down kind of in the mid to high single digits, you know, something like that. Which means yeah. some markets are going to be down; they're already down double digits. But in you know, in California and parts of the Mountain West, maybe Florida, you'll see some bigger price declines. Okay, I'll, 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 that's the theory. What do you think? Uh, well, I I think uh, you know, like like we talked about earlier, affordability is just terrible right now. And even if mortgage rates come down a bit, I mean, it's still not great affordability. And that'll happen when you have 40% run up in national house price in two, two years and a three percentage point move up in mortgage rates. Um, and, and so the thing that I'm really interested in is just to see what how the market reacts in the second half of the year. Like, does that strain on the affordability start to like pull down on the price in the second half of the year? 
that's the part that I really want to see. And then also what happens to active listings? Uh, because when mortgage rates spiked, uh, we started to get uh, active listings moving up fairly fast, some velocity in some of the markets like Austin and out West. And then all of that is really tightened up. Now, Austin, of course, bottomed for active listings in January. And if you look at their house price data, they look like a market that's still very much in correction mode. Hmm. Uh, very little appreciation this spring. If you seasonally adjust it, they're still down. Um, but then you look at like Phoenix and Vegas, and they still haven't even bottomed for inventory. So it's like, are they still like tightening? Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with the active listings too. Um, now, in terms of the forecast, um, a, a lot of the forecasts have revised upward a bit mm -hmm. uh, for the year. Uh, like the Fannie Mae thought we would be down like four something for the year. Now it's like one or two. Goldman thought we'd be down six for the year. The one they put out last week is now 2.2 for the year. Uh, Freddie Mac, I think, still thinks like down one or two for the year. And then you have like uh, CoreLogic, uh, which never went negative, and they think it'll be like four something over the next 12 months. Zillow. Positive four. Positive four. Yeah. Oh, Zillow, interesting. Five over the next 12 months. AEI, uh, American Enterprise Institute, uh, they think that it'll be six for the year and then seven next year. Oh, wow. That's Ed Pinto. We've had him on as well. Yeah, Pinto yeah. went from, he was kind of a holdout last year going negative. And then right in like December, January, he went, okay, 10, 15% peak to trough, which then he went past a lot of people. Huh. And, and now and he's at, you know, six for the year and then seven for next year plus. Okay. So they've had a very big reversal over the past six months. Um, you know, and, and for the ones that are down for this year to be right, they, you, you need the, the seasonality to kind of hit hard in the second half of the year, blow mm -hmm. off the gains and then be down a little more. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I think we're kind of more in that camp. We get some additional weakness, but in, in this, in our, in our thinking, this weakness plays out over the next couple three years. It's not, there's no cliff event here. It's more yeah. of a kind of a slow grind lower. Hey, Chris, you, you know, you're obviously we're on the same page here with regard to the house yep. price outlook because we talk about it all the time. And it's what our modeling would uh, suggest. If we're wrong in prices tend uh, end up being stronger than we anticipate, why would, what, what, how, how would you square that? How would, you, how would that happen? Uh, what, under what conditions would that happen? Well, you, you mentioned that you have this tug of war between the inventory because of the lock-in effect and the affordability issues. So under this scenario, it must mean that the uh, the inventory, the lock-in effect wins, right? Mm. People just hunker down. They don't sell, you know, and that lack of inventory uh, continues to sustain the prices or actually pushes the prices up because there's just nothing available. So the few buyers that are out there, you know, they're competing with each other and continue to buy um, cause the prices to rise. Okay. So we're going to be, if, that, if that's the case, we're wrong in two regards. One, the house prices are stronger, more resilient than anticipated. And the other is that home sales are weaker than we anticipate. Yes. And right. origination volumes, obviously weaker as a result also. 
That's right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. We'll see how this, well, Lance, we'll see how this plays out. I, <laughs> you know, so, so far I feel pretty good about our, our forecasting track record, but this is going to be a real test because there's a lot of uh, differences out there with regard to house price growth. Let me ask you this. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time. You talk to a lot of uh, sources uh, other than me, I'm sure I'm your, your, one of your favorite sources. I'm just guessing. Uh, but and you mentioned John, John Burns and uh, Ed uh, Pinto at AEI. Well, who else do you really pay close attention to? Yeah, so I, I really like uh, like people who are like really close to the builders. I think those people are interesting, like uh, mm-hmm. Alec Wolf over at Zonda. Uh, I think that's really interesting because the builders react very quickly mm-hmm. and they really have that pulse there because they're in a vulnerable spot in the market at all times. Uh, so Ali is really great. Um, and, uh, you know, for data sources, I really like all the public data that Zillow puts out too, uh, because, you know, they're a little ahead for the, the monthly data. They do it for a very, for a lot of regional places. So I think that's great. And, uh, and then, you know, my other favorite source is just the tenure and just watching how, you know, the <laughs> market and financial markets are reacting to everything. Uh, you're, you're a weirdo then you're, you're watching the you click, 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 watching that tenure move up and down, huh? Well, yeah. And every day I tweet out the new uh, mortgage rate that mortgage uh, news daily does. Yeah, I love that too. Uh, I like click the, on that several times a day. Right yeah. 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 Very good. Now well, one thing that we have seen lately is that we've seen uh, the the financial markets tighten up a bit over the past mm-hmm. months. Now I'm I know this week they've loosened a little more, but we have finally been over six eight percent six point eight percent in the mortgage news daily tracker uh, every day since May 18th. So we've had a couple of months where we've started to firm right as we've kind of went into that slower seasonal window. And I, I think that's something to, uh, interesting to watch and to see if that can, uh, you know, m- move up inventory at all. Yeah, just for the, oh, sorry, go ahead, Lance. Well, yeah, we're still in the seasonal window where inventory does move up, but it, active listings have not moved up that much this year compared to last year. Last year, there was more of a break upward for active listings. And that was really uh, just the market's reaction to spiked mortgage rates and that de- initial demand pullback. Yeah, just for the listener out there, um, Mortgage Daily News is a website, and uh, they it's oh, it feels like almost real time. They're publishing uh, mortgage rate information, and it feels like that's a kind of the the bible for rate information. Is yeah, that fair they're to say? always a little higher than that weekly average that Freddie Mac puts out. Yeah, uh, but I I like it because it's daily. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's great. Uh, and you can see uh, on a daily basis, you know, when that 10 year moves up or goes down and then it reacts to it. Um, so I, I think it's really interesting. Right. Hey, Chris, um, uh, any questions you want to pose to Lance? Did I miss anything? Anything we should touch upon th- that you feel is important? I don't know if you want to get into some regional trends do you want to talk about yeah why don't we quickly spots, use, uh, lance yeah. Uh, yeah you mentioned austin uh lance uh what other areas uh are you noticing some real weakness and in, in some perhaps on the other side of it some surprising strength yeah in, in the so market? last year the initial weakness was out west and obviously texas austin um 
although Texas was still kind of bifurcated in parts. Um, and then places like Raleigh too kind of fit into that. And the, the Southeast was kind of a, a little patchy. And then the Midwest last year in the Northeast, uh, when you seasonally adjusted the price declines, there wasn't a decline with seasonal adjustments. So I think that kind of was telling us even last year that those places were probably going to be a little more resilient. Um, some of the places this year that have been weaker uh, than than expected, maybe. Uh, New Orleans keeps showing some seasonal adjusted declines, and that's been interesting. And then there's parts of Florida. Uh, I don't know if it was like the hurricane that rolled in last year, uh, but like Cape Coral, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but some of those areas have been weaker. And I think what that tells us is that the market is so unhealthy right now that it's vulnerable hmm. in ways that it's not normally. Um, and yeah, if you look at like Hurricane Harvey, there was an impact in Houston a bit, but not as much as you're seeing in these parts of Florida uh, this spring. Um, and, and so I, I think that tells us that this is just a very unhealthy market. And I, I do think even though prices haven't declined this spring, I think there's some vulnerability depending on how things play out. Very interesting. Just a sidebar, you've mentioned seasonal adjustment a few times, and I guess the the, the important point is that that the that housing activity is very, as one could imagine, if you think about it for a second, is very seasonal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and prices reflect that. So the if you're selling in the wintertime in the Northeast or Midwest, prices are seasonally weak. And then if you're selling in the spring, summer, they're seasonally strong and you need to correct for that if you're trying to get a, a sense of, you know, real time, you know, what's going on yeah. with the prices. Yeah. Exactly. And so, Chris, I would love to know a couple of your thoughts on the regional stuff. And then also, are you watching like the global stuff? Because one of the things I'm starting to see is that some of the global markets that last year corrected kind of hard, harder than us, and then this year had a bounce are actually starting to fall again. And then the other rate sensitive in, uh, class, asset class, autos last year corrected kind of hard. This spring saw a bounce and then now has seen some correction. So I'd love to know, Chris, your thoughts on uh, the regional differences across the country right now. And then if you're kind of what you're seeing in some of the global markets, if you're tracking them. Yeah, sure. So on the on the regional side, uh, kind of share what you uh you outlined in terms of the Northeast, Midwest, showing some resilience. And I point to, we have an index of valuation or overvaluation that we produce for all the different markets. And those were areas where we didn't see a lot of excessive appreciation, let's call it, right? 40% appreciation over two years was high for the nation as a whole, but it was really concentrated in the in the West, parts of the South, the Northeast, and the Midwest because of some of the demographic trends as well, without migration, uh, actually held up pretty well from a valuation standpoint. So those are areas where, especially with work from home, uh, young buyers who are looking to to buy a home can find some values there. So I'm not at all surprised by what you mentioned in terms of those areas holding up a bit bit better. And then conversely, some of the other areas like a Boise, where we had such tremendous run-up in prices, actually giving back uh, some of those gains. So we see that those similar patterns uh, in our data, and I do expect that uh, to continue. The other key regional um, aspect I'd emphasize, and it was interesting that you picked out New Orleans and parts of Florida, um, areas that obviously are hurricane prone. 
I suspect that we're going to continue to see more and more of an impact from insurance mm-hmm. uh, prices on house prices, right? Uh, yeah. The availability of insurance is going down in a lot of areas, right? Insurers are pulling out of parts of California and, and Florida. Insurance is very expensive in uh, New Orleans, especially. And I think that now we're seeing homeowners or home buyers facing more of the reality of the total cost of ownership. They can't rely on appreciation. So I suspect that might factor in more into their uh, decisions. So those areas certainly could be more vulnerable to mm-hmm. some house price corrections. In and, terms and- of the more, yeah, go ahead. No, no, keep going. Sorry. I was going to move on to the global. Yeah. I did want to point out one thing. Lance, I believe, is from New Orleans. Is that right? Lance? No, Cincinnati. Oh, Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But well, I don't think you, I, you maybe, I don't think you say New Orleans. You say New Orleans, right? Isn't aren't I right? Nolans. Nolans. Yeah. Okay. Just just saying. But not if you. But not only if you're from. Oh, there, is that right? To say it, I think. Right? Oh, no. uh, you know, it's like okay. Boise. I don't know. Boise. Okay. I, I, think, anyway. <laughs> I see where, where you're getting the Lambert thing from. My Zoom doesn't have the T on at the end. It of doesn't. The, no. Yeah, it's missing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay. So uh, we're going to talk about global prices. Go ahead, Chris. Global prices and autos. I think we're going through. Um, why autos? Why, we, we, why are we talking about autos? I thought we we're just talking in about terms house. of seeing a similar type of a pattern okay. of okay. Uh, strength and weakness. What uh, about those anchovy think... prices? <laughs> you know, no, no, never mind. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, I lost train of thought, but uh, yeah, I, I <laughs> think we're I do seeing. I do, that, I do that to Lance all the time. Because, what the hell are we talking about? You're throwing me off the yeah. track here. Okay, go ahead. Fair uh, enough. Yeah, I think that uh, I think the uh, the other thing that or the other factor here, both for the U.S. and then externally as well, is just uh, what's going on with uh, uh, foreign investment. Right? There's a lot of there was certainly a lot of cash flowing around over the last uh, few years looking for a home, and real estate seemed like a uh, a good place to park some some money, both in the U.S. and certain markets. I think that's part of the reason why you might have seen some of the appreciation uh, we did in certain markets, particularly if you think of uh, Miami parts of uh, California, but then also in other global cities as well. And now I, I think that uh, I, I suspect some of that is, is is weakening, right? Given some weakness in China, other parts of the world, you may not have that uh, that foreign market support uh, that we had previously. So every, all of these markets now are adjusting. And I'm a firm believer that price to income ratios have to come back to some type of affordable uh, equilibrium. And I think that price process is underway. Mm. Well, uh, Lance, I, I think we're we're at time. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, we're all on the record, including you. Uh, congratulations, you're you're now an economist. So uh, with, with a track with a record, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll look forward to having you back on and uh, reprising the market at some point down the road here. So, thanks for uh, taking time out with us. I very much appreciate it. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. And to the listener, uh, we're going to call this a, a podcast and we will talk to you next week. Take care now. You know, one last plug I want to put ah, in. Oh, yeah. Fair wife. Well, go ahead. Uh, people can find me on Twitter at News Lambert. Say that again. Uh, people can find me on Twitter at News Lambert is my handle. And I, I'll uh, t- testify. You, you you have a, a great uh, Twitter feed. I, I follow that regularly. Uh, so uh, that uh, I think... Uh, Listeners should uh, definitely follow because it's very informative. Uh, 
Okay, with that, we'll call it a podcast. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>